Welcome to Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. This is your host, Dave Alpaw. Brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Their website is www.nljps.us, where the first come first. This is Episode 12, Heroes of the Labor Movement. Our first hero is Eugene Victor Debs. He was born in Indiana. The need for employment ended his schooling at age 14 when he became a fireman on a local railroad. Later, he took night classes at the local business college in his spare time, giving up his job as a railroad fireman in 1874. He took up another job as a billing clerk in the wholesale grocery firm of Holman and Cox. 1875 was a busy year for Depps. He became the founder of the local Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen and continued to work at Holman and Cox. Debs used part of his salary to help the fledgling local union, and he conducted its work at night. Later in 1875, he became president of Occidental Literary Club of Terry Hoot, to which he invited such famous personages as Colonel Robert Ingersoll, James Whitcomb, Riley, Susan B. Anthony, and many others. Five years later, he was elected the Union's National Secretary Treasurer. He was also politically active, serving as the town clerk of Terre Haute, 1879 to 1883. In 1884, Debs was elected state representative to the Indian General Assembly as a Democrat representing Terre Haute and Virgo County. He also served in 1885. In 1893, Debs became president of the American Railway Union, the first effective industrial union in the United States. The ARU made its mark in 1894 with a successful strike against the Great Northern Railway. When not, a will moved on the railway for 18 days until the company finally granted the union's demands. On May 11, 1894, the Pullman boycott and strike in Chicago began. And on July 23rd, Debs and the leaders of the ARU were jailed for defying a federal injunction to return to work. In May 1895, Debs and the leaders of the ARU found themselves back in jail, but this time it was for contempt of court in connection with the Pullman strike. In 1905, Eugene Debs helped to establish the International Workers of the World, IWW, but soon found the organization too radical for his tastes. Eugene Debs made later presidential runs in 1908, 1912, and 1920, the last of which was the most successful with nearly one million votes. During World War One, Eugene Debs was a highly visible and local pacifist. On June 16th of 1918, he delivered a famous anti-war speech in Canton, Ohio. He protested World War One, which was raging in Europe. He was arrested because of the speech and convicted in a federal court in Cleveland, Ohio, 
under wartime espionage act. He was sentenced to serve 10 years in prison and disenfranchised for life. In other words, losing his citizenship. While Debs was serving his sentence in Atlanta, Georgia, his, his humility, friendliness, and his assistance won him the respect and admiration of the most hardened convicts. Debs ran his 1920 presidential campaign from behind bars. President Warren Harding pardoned Debs in 1921 on December 28th. Debs arrived home in Terry Hoop where he received a tremendous Welcome from thousands of Tarahutans. Ill health prevented him from resuming active participation in politics. Debs would spend the rest of his life trying to recover his health, which was severely battered while in prison confinement. He wrote numerous articles and made several speeches until 1926, when he was admitted to Lindlar Sanitarium just outside of Chicago. He died there on October 20th, and his body was brought back to Terre Haute for burial. Eugene Debs was regarded by many, perhaps unfairly, as a wild-eyed radical socialist, and unionism were highly suspect to in his days. Debs was a man of great personal charm who, by the end of his life, had gained the grudging respect of many of his former opponents. John Lewis, President of the United Mine Workers of America from 1920 until 1960 and founding President of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, CIO, John Lewis was the dominant voice shaping the labor movement in the 1930s. The CIO owed its existence in large measure to Lewis, who was a tireless and effective advocate of industrial unionism and of government assistance in organizing basic industry. John Lewis was born in Lucas, Iowa on February 12, 1880, the first of seven children. Lewis completed nearly 10 years a formal education before joining his father in the mines at age 16. As a young man, Lewis served as the recording secretary of the UMWA Local 1933. In 1901, he headed west where he rode the rails for four years and experienced firsthand the hardships of workers across the country. The Lewises moved to Panama, Illinois, where John was elected president of UMWA Local 1475, Lewis lobbied the Illinois legislature on behalf of workers' compensation and mine safety legislation. Coming to the attention of Samuel Gompers, president of the American Federation of Labor, AFL, hired as a national organizer and field representative, Lewis served the Federation from 1910 to 1916 while working closely with the incumbent UMWA President John P. White to defeat socialist and radical insurgents seeking to control the Union. White named Lewis UMWA International Statistician at the beginning of 1917. An able analyst and effective negotiator, Lewis quickly emerged as a dominant figure within the Union's leadership. Cooperating with federal efforts to regulate mining production and labor relations during World War I, Lewis helped win substantial wage increases for miners in the central bitumous coal fields, and in the fall of 1917, 
after the appointment of the UMWA president to a position on the Federal Fuel Board, Lewis became the union's new vice president. He became acting president of the UMWA in 1919 and formally took over the job in 1920 when his predecessor resigned. The 40-year-old Lewis now led the largest and most influential union in the country. In the early 1920s, Lewis used the nation's dependence on coal to maintain union membership despite severe economic downturns in the industry. He also guided the miners through a successful five-month strike to preserve the wage gains they had won during the war. The unions, unionized mines faced intense competition from non-union operators. However, the entire industry suffered from the destructive effects of unregulated boom-and-bust production cycles. With union membership declining from 500,000 to 75,000 in 1933, Lewis lobbied hard for federal legislation that would stabilize the industry, guaranteeing workers the right to organize and take wages out of competition. Lewis sought Democratic support for the idea, and the Democrats proved more receptive than the Republicans had. In 1933, Congress passed the National Industrial Recovery Act to regulate production, ensure stable employment, and guarantee workers the right to organize and bargain collectively over the terms and conditions of their employment. Gambling the union's dwindling treasury on an all-out organizing drive, Lewis flooded the coal fields with the message, the president wants you to join the union. Scarcely three months after the National Recovery Administration was established, 92% of all the country's coal miners were organized. Lewis Nix sought support from the AFL to organize other mass production industries. His motion to make the AFL's executive council more representative was defeated at the AFL's 1933 convention. But when a similar motion passed in 1934, Lewis was named to the expanded council. At the same time, the AFL declared itself in favor of organizing on an industrial basis. Initially optimistic about the future of industrial unions in the Federation, by the following May, Lewis concluded that the Federation entrenched leadership was neither willing nor able to organize workers. At the 1935 convention, he led a no-holds-barred assault on the old guard, demanding they make good on their promises to organize and charter industrial unions. When his proposals were defeated, Lewis intentionally provoked Carpenter's president, William Hutchinson, into calling him a name. Lewis leaped a row of chairs and knocked Hutchinson to the ground with a right to the nose. The blow sealed the breach between the AFL and the CIO and signaled to millions of workers across the country that they had a new champion in John L. Lewis. Making full use of his instant notoriety, Lewis committed UMWA funds to support organizing drives in the rubber, auto, and steel industries. Without this support and without Lewis's involvement, it is doubtful whether these campaigns would have succeeded. Lewis assigned his own staff to assist each drive, remained in constant communication with them all and personally negotiated the agreement with General Motors and U.S. Steel. In 1938, the CIO held its founding convention and elected Lewis its first president. Inspired by his stirring oratory and his bold demands 
on corporate power, millions of workers revered Lewis as the conscious of American industry and the embodiment of the new power of labor. Some commentators considered Lewis a contender for the presidency of the United States. Thereafter, Lewis largely devoted himself to the UMW, remaining a bold and visionary labor leader. Bitter mine strikes in 1943 and 1946 earned him the enmity of many, but Lewis persisted as the coal industry slipped into a long, slow decline and oil replaced coal as the nation's number one source of energy. Lewis fought to protect the income and employment security of miners. In 1948, the UMWA won on historic agreement establishing medical and pension benefits for miners, financed in part by a royalty on every ton of coal mined. The union also acknowledged management's right to automate and to close unprofitable operations. In return, it secured high wages and expanded benefits in the remaining mines. In the 1950s, Lewis won periodic wage and benefit increases for miners and led the campaign for the first Federal Mine Safety Act in 1952. Lewis retired as president of the UMWA in 1960 and died at his home in Alexandria, Virginia in 1969. Victor Ruther Mr. Ruther was one of three brothers who led the United Auto Workers during its mid-century heyday, while his brother Walter was the prominent union president who wielded influence in national politics for almost a quarter of a century, and Ray Ruther handled legislative affairs. Victor Ruther's role was at first the union's education director and later the union's international director. He had lived in Washington since 1954. A passionate believer in the ability of unions to help working people with a broad range of social issues beyond paychecks and benefits, Mr. Ruther forged a career spanning the era from labor's flirtation with Russian socialism to its alarm at the outsourcing of what were once union jobs to third world countries. He appointed Mildred Jeffrey to lead the UAW's first women's bureau in the 1950s, protested the Vietnam War in the 1960s, publicly rebuked the Shah of Iran in the 1970s, and argued against the UAW's partnership with automakers in the mid-1980s. First made his name as the organizer staffing the soundtrack in the winter of 1937 when Flint, Michigan, Auto workers staged an epic sit-down strike at one of the GM plants. Mr. Ruther climbed aboard the sound truck and urged the strikers to stand firm, despite the cutoff of power and food. The police later attacked the strikers with tear gas and bullets, wounding 13. The union responded with fire hoses and heavy hinges fired from jerry-built slingshots in what is known as the Battle of the Running Bolt. A dozen years later, Mr. Ruth sat down to read the newspaper in his living room when a sudden shotgun blast shattered the front window and blew apart his jaw. Mr. Ruther lost his right eye and his collarbone was smashed. A partial denture was pushed deep into his throat. He said in his 1976 memoir, The Brothers Ruther and the story of the UAW that he told the oral surgeon 
They can take out my eye and take off an arm or a leg, but please fix up my tongue. I've got a living to make. After the 1949 assassination attempt, Mr. Ruther and his family moved to Paris, part of the Congress of Industrial Organizations' effort to rebuild the decimated trade labor unions of Europe. He returned in 1954 and settled in Washington, where he led the UAW's international work and was a close confidant to his brother, Walter. Mr. Ruther didn't hesitate to voice his opinion about the direction of the labor movement during the strikes and bargaining and internecine union struggles. He was a key player when the American Federation of Labor merged with the CIO. When the UAW pulled out of the AFL-CIO in 1968 and rejoined it in 1981, and when... Canadian auto workers pulled out of the UAW to form their own organization. He objected to the union accepting money from CI Front organization and urged the union to increase its effort to improve housing for the working people. Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. We are located at www.laborknowyourrights.com, all one word. Please go to iTunes and rate us. It helps others find the podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. They're located at www.nljsp.us. You can contact us to leave a message, suggestions for future podcasts, questions, or just to say hello at laborknowyourrights at gmail.com. Thank you very much.